Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Coleman, who is the author of The Walls Within, The Politics of Immigration in Modern America. This book was published in 2021 by Princeton University Press, and it is incredibly topical in talking about how immigrants um, both uh, papered and non-papered um, operate within the United States and how the state in its many incarnations um, interacts with all, all kinds of folks in the United States, citizens and non-citizens alike. Uh, but I will let Sarah talk a lot about that. Um, I'd like to welcome Sarah Coleman to the New Books in Political Science podcast um, and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much, Lily, for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, And I'm so excited to speak with sort of this diverse audience of listeners um, about this book and and sort of this project writ large. Um, I came to this project um, sort of in a couple different ways. One is I've always been interested in immigration history and immigration stories. I've also fundamentally been interested in sort of definitions of citizenship, right? And what does it mean? What are rights and benefits and entitlements sort of, and how has notions of what that means to individuals changed over time? And then third, I've always been sort of interested really in this sort of political contestation around federalism in the United States. And so those three sort of main nodes of inquiry sort of came together in this project. Um, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, uh, and I grew up there. Um, and I worked in politics uh, for about five years before going to graduate school. I worked um, in the U.S. Senate um, and then in the Obama administration in the White House, um, working on domestic policy issues for then Vice President uh, Joseph Biden. Um, and so a lot of that sort of interest in how the inner workings and sort of part of my book about the inner workings of politics right, is informed by that experience um, working on the Hill and in the White House and sort of interested in, in sort of how the sausage gets made in terms of policy. Um, and sort of that sort of background, personal background sort of influences how I write and sort of how I research projects. Um, and then I, I went off to, after the White House, I went off to graduate school and sort of really got to dig in deeper to these questions that I'd seen playing out in DC, right. And sort of wanted to, to really understand some of these questions and sort of answer, how did we get here? Right. And what does that mean going forward? That's kind of the real, um, impetus behind the book. And then as I've been writing this book, I've been here at Texas State University and obviously immigration is first and foremost present in everyday lives everywhere in America, but particularly here in Texas. And so I think it sort of was really interesting to sort of move here and be revising and sort of editing this book in a place to see how this is playing out in particular in a certain community um, here in central Texas. 
And and you certainly do, you know, answer the question in a certain sense of how did we get here um, with regard to domestic politics around immigration and, and to some degree have signaling about what may or may not happen next. Um, and this is a complicated story, right? Um, immigration in the United States has never been necessarily a, quote, simple story, uh, particularly when... Um, there have been moves and policies to try to manage, so-called manage that. So if you could start off a little bit by explaining the brief history <laughs> of, to some degree, how we got where we are now, which you know sort of stops a little bit in 1965 and moves on to something else a little bit different. Um, but you certainly do have this broad sweep of uh, sort of immigration history um, in the United States from the earliest days of the pre-Republic um, to to sort of more contemporary periods. Yeah. And I think in particular what the focus that I really take to the um, to the project and sort of where and I think a lot of our current day-to-day news headlines and a lot of the current literature right out there about immigration policy writ large sort of really focuses on the Southwest border or particular border regions. And I think what I what lens I wanted to bring to this history that I try to draw both from deep historical all the way through the present. And what we know about immigration policy today is, is it isn't just about admissions and deportations, which are important, right? And that it's just one piece and a lot of the current dialogue, right? It's just one piece of a puzzle from where much of the real anti-immigrant effort lies today and has been in the past, which is in businesses and schools and communities sort of inside of our borders. And I wanted to sort of look at how immigrants in the United States today have dramatically worse access to the rights and social safety net than they did just 50 years ago. And how has that sort of change over time from the beginning of the sort of republic through, but really focusing on sort of where we 1965 forward. And I wanted to write the story of how that happened and particularly what it means for all of us living permanently in the United States, right? Not just those who are unauthorized, right? Or authorized, you know? Um, And so I I guess I'll sort of talk about how I do that. Um, So I begin my book in the wake of the Hart Seller Act of 1965, right? Which was a key piece of legislation, right? In Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, right? It's passed sort of in the year following the Civil Rights Act in this moment right, of sort of this idea of um, equality. And it ends the national uh, quota system of the 1920s, and it launches this new era in admissions policy, and and actually in immigration more broadly. So not only do I argue, right, that it reshape admissions policy, it starts to set into place a massive demographic change, right, that's going to reshape American society and culture, And it launches, I argue, these deep debates over the place of the immigrant in American life. And as what we see post-1965 is that as controlling admissions to the United States across the southern border becomes more difficult for policymakers, the battle to control immigrants in large part shifted from external borders to these internal ones. And I sort of was like, how do I really focus? You could put a wide plethora of topics on like, where sort of are these internal borders? And I decided for the framing of my book to sort of look in four key areas where I felt the state touched an individual's life. And so there's education, labor, welfare rights, and civil liberties. 
And so the book is sort of structured in that way. I begin in the 1970s with the fight over educational rights for unauthorized immigrant children in a case called Plyler v. Doe, which starts in 1977 and actually doesn't come to the Supreme Court until the early 1980s. Um, but in Tyler, which is a, for those of you who may not be familiar with the geography of Texas, it's a small town on the eastern um, part of the state. The local school board announced in 1977 that they were going to begin charging tuition for unauthorized students uh, of $1,000, which is basically cost prohibitive in today's dollars. It's about $3,000, dollars $3 to $4,000. And I trace the story of how these local families connected with this sort of national civil rights organizations and took this case all the way to the Supreme Court. And as much as it's sort of looking at how this immigrants' rights question connects with sort of the larger rights revolution, right? How are the networks that these families are tying into, right, are legacies of the African-American civil rights movement? How do they draw on sort of the, le the legal arguments of the civil rights movement to bring this case to the Supreme Court? And on the other side, I look at how sort of conservative groups like the Mountain States Legal Foundation who are responding to the rights revolution of the 60s, right, sort of back into this case, right? And they see this case as sort of an area of their concern. And I try and sort of trace this case all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and groups like the Mountain States Legal Foundation really are interesting because they, they frame, and this sort of gives an idea when I start to talk about the changes in um, in the anti-immigrant movement in the United States, right? They frame it in sort of, this is a gross expansion of the rights revolution of the 1960s. And they talk about how it's creating a higher tax burden to pay for the government expansion. And very formally, they talk about it's a trampling of the rights of state and local institutions, right? They start to bring on this language of immigration federalism from a very early stage. And I sort of trace how in the wake of the civil rights movement, this both sides sort of dig in on this case. And I look at how both the Carter and the Reagan administrations struggle to deal with it because of the politics of the moment. And I trace it through the case all the way to the Supreme Court, which backs the students in the case, right? And it's the reason why K through 12 education today in the United States, right, uh, is entitled, students are uh, entitled to K through 12 education regardless of their immigration status, and then I sort of move on from this sort of what we could view as a potential high watermark, right, of, of, of immigrants' rights. And I think a lot of the activists in the early 1980s sort of viewed Plyler as this, like, potential new opening moment. And I sort of trace sort of following that the ways in which the anti-immigrant movement sort of digs in. And I sort of, as I mentioned, four areas. So the first one's education. Then I turn to labor rights. And I look at the growing power of the anti-immigrant movement in the 1980s in battles over employer sanctions and labor rights and show how even though the anti-immigrant movement was growing, it really is stunted by some internal divisions both within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And then I move out of the 1980s to the 1990s and I talk about welfare rights. And the 1990s, I argue overall, and I think it's important to see it as the 1990s were a pivotal decade in immigration policy. And with national politics gridlocked, as we see in the chapters on the 80s, anti-immigrant groups really turned to the state houses. And I look at welfare rights and Proposition 187 that came out of California. And Proposition 187, for those of you who did not live through it, 
um, was a 1994 ballot initiative to establish a state-run citizenship screening program, right, and prohibit unauthorized immigrants from using many state services, including non-emergency health care, public education, uh, lots of state services. And one of the things that I show is that while the federal government, or sorry, the federal courts are going to invalidate Proposition 187's provisions, because the governor is going to challenge the case, the political success of the measure ends up having these huge national policy implications, right? So it also, to me, is something interesting about policy formation, right? And the way that politics, right, even can sort of drive policy formation. And conservatives like Newt Gingrich and others, right, use Proposition 187 as a model for proposals. And we see Proposition 187 plays like the electoral, uh, the electoral success of 187, even though it's invalidated, really plays a key sort of part in the development of welfare reform and the removal and limitation of access for authorized and unauthorized immigrants to key social safety net programs. And, and I wanted to ask you about sort of one of the ways that, that you're sort of discussing all of this is you say Prop 187 was in California and the case um, with regard to the schools was in Texas. Um, and yet immigration, according to Article One of the Constitution, is this responsibility of the United States Congress. And you use the terminology immigration federalism, uh, which is a big framing of a lot of what you are talking about in terms of the the policies that are developed um, across the United States, more or less 1965 on. Um, can you explain a little in a little bit more detail um, what this concept immigration federalism is? And to some degree, how it operates in the constitutional system. Right. So I think, so immigration federalism more broadly sort of is about the role of states in performing immigration functions, right? Whether that be enforcement in, and I think broadly, I, enforcement broad, right? If you could see me, you would know I'm like using air quotes, but uh <laughs> Um, enforcement, meaning um, sort of whatever sort of role that they're playing in immigration control and immigration policy making. Um, and there's a bunch of scholars in political science, right, who are working in this area. Uh, Karthik Ramakrishnan, obviously, Alan Coburn, Tom Wong, all come to sort of mind at the front of my end. Legal scholars like Christina Rodriguez, right, thinking about the ways in which the increasing role that states are playing. And historically, right, we all, we know through some amazing work um, that historically up until the 1880s, much of the role of immigration control was played by states, right? From, um, from the early, there's a great book called Expelling the Poor, right? Talking about the early, um, the early colonial period all the way through um, the 1880s. And during the 19, 1880s, and I go through this a little bit in my book, um, the federal government for both foreign policy and other concerns through a series of cases relating to Chinese exclusion on the West Coast begins to say to states that you have uh, you have no right to uh, to perform immigration control functions. Um, and through from beginning in the 1880s, it really the the purview of immigration control, the uh, immigration controls in the purview of the federal government. Um, on the ground, that's always been a little bit more murky, right, between the 1880s um, and uh, present day. Um, but really, like on the books, 
right? And legally, it's been much more through a series of court decisions, right? It's been much more thought of as a a matter for the federal government. And I think what I'm arguing in the 1990s that starts to happen is you start to see that states begin to really sort of shift that dynamic and take power back into the states. And they do that in two ways. They either pressure federal authorities to delegate to delegate authority back to the states, as they do in a, in a case I show in Iowa, <clears throat> or as I show in California, they pressure the federal officials to conform federal immigration policy to their preferences, right? So it's one of two ways, but either way, the the sort of driver of the policy is the state versus the federal government in a new way in the 1990s. And and so the state's driving the policy, as you already mentioned, that, you know, there are these high profile examples like Prop 187. Um, and I lived through that. I, I remember that. Um, that was a contentious debate and fight and nationally uh, drew, drew national attention in lots and lots of ways. But as you note, there are also these smaller um, legal undertakings like the case in Iowa, like other cases that you pay attention to that are also sort of pushing on this question of the states being the executors, as it were, of the national policy. Um, and this is because in so many ways, the states are the ones who execute the policy around schools or um, around welfare. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that tangling um, that we've seen in in part because of the rise of the welfare state in general um, that makes it more complex and the, the, the entities delivering that complexity are generally the states and localities? Yeah. And states, and I think it's it's a twofold thing. It has to do with the rise of the welfare state. It also has to do with movement within the United States and demographic changes, right? So I think, right, a lot of the things that were, the programs that we're talking about really come to start to really expand in the 1970s, right? So this may not have been on someone who was concerned about sort of an anti-immigrant activist sort of radar, that this was even something that people were accessing, right, until the 1970s. And we see an explosion in the 70s, 80s, early 90s of some of these social safety net programs, right? And so that brings things to the radar, to the front forefront, right, combined with sort of political, not to throw reporters under the bus, but some of the reporting and some of the narrative, right, of this like, you know, uh, Leo Chavez's like Latino threat narrative that comes up at this moment, right? Those sort of that strand, both the rise in entitlement spending, the rise of like this narrative about the demographic changes, right? Sort of come together at this moment to sort of, plus there's a massive demographic shift that's going on. And one of the things that I think is often not talked about and sort of, I think about in terms of my own work is post-1986 and what's known as the quote unquote Reagan amnesty, right? There's freedom of movement in the United States for many of the 3 million, um, people who gain uh, authorization status, right? And so you see because of uh, because of that policy change, plus some of the demographics changes, plus the changing in right to work states and all that, you see immigrant populations showing up in places that they haven't been before, right? So it really brings that 
conversation into new communities at the same time. And to them, that's sometimes where you start to see this access to the, the social safety net in the state sort of come into play, right? For example, I talk about Iowa and the rise of this program called 287G, um, which is a program that delegates uh, immigration enforcement authority to state and local law enforcement. You know, Iowa didn't have a massive Latino population uh, prior to this period, but we see changes in how meatpacking occurs, right? And, And demographic changes start to follow in Iowa and the politics start to change in Iowa, right? And all of these things and entitlement spending, and there's a, you know, downturn farms are being hit hard, right? And that starts to change the conversation and Iowa starts to play a role in this immigration question in a way that it never played, you know, in previous decades. And, and so that, I mean, again, I, I teach, I live and teach in Wisconsin. Um, and, and I, I can talk about Waukesha and Waukesha County, um, and the, the sort of tensions that uh, exist there around the, um, Hispanic and Latinx population, um, that has been there for a long time. Um, but is is generally not necessarily always reflective of what folks think about when they think about Waukesha and Waukesha County, um, not to denigrate Waukesha or Waukesha County. Um, but I, I, I did find the, the sort of complexity of the demographic question, one that is really fascinating because in today's flashpoints about immigration, right? We're always hearing about the so-called wall and building the wall on the Southern border. Um, But that the demographic shift that happened earlier on um, is one that is a real big part of the story that's often missed. Can you explain a little bit in a little bit more detail about that sort of demographic shift um, and and how and why that has had such an impact on the immigration debate? Right. So much of our our immigration policy between 1924 and 1965 was highly restrictive. Um, You know, I think there's someone who said, think of ways in which we used, quote, immigration as a tool of mass racial engineering, right? And through the 1920s and the 1960s. Um, And when that changes in 1965 and we get um, sort of this new immigration framework, right? Uh, For the first time, we have a cap on the Western hemisphere, right? And so traditional migration patterns that have been going on for generations are now quote, like sort of suddenly categorized differently, right? And sort of we start to, re- there sort of becomes a narrative about sort of what's considered uh, authorized immigration and what's not in a way that had never been there before, right? Even though these populations had sort of been moving through, through that period. Is that sort of answer like the historical change. Yeah. And, and to some degree, you know, when, when what you talk about in the book is the fact that the Western hemisphere cap is one that, that actually is working in opposition in a certain sense to um, what was expected to come out of the 1965 act. And so while there was an equalizing, it actually was, was sort of a more of a suppression 
of of the demographics that were coming from um, south of the U.S. border. Yes. And so what we start to see is a lot of populations that had previously sort of been been in the United States and moving back and forth in a more cyclical fashion, right, are now considered undocumented in a new way, right? And particularly this happens sort of beginning in the, you start to see this recategorization really in the, in the mid-1970s. Um, and then even one of the other things you see is in 86, as and particularly nowadays when you think about that, as we um, militarize the in the 80s through the 90s, as we militarize the border more, what it means is that actually it's not that people stop entering the United States. They just stop sort of this these cyclical patterns and they end up staying more in the United States than they previously sort of would have free flowed more across uh, across the border. And this is certainly something. Go ahead. Remember, demographically, I was going to say to just think about the demographics. Right. We have 24 million people in the United States today who do not have citizenship status, about half of whom, right, about 12 million of whom are unauthorized, right? We have a lot of conversations about the Southwest border, but there's already 24 million people here in the United States, right, who are living this in a very different reality. And it's not a question about the border, right? And it's a question who are living and building communities here in the United States. And I think sort of taking, shifting our focus away from the border and sort of talking about how what this means for those 24 million people. And also like just reminding people that the vast majority of people who are in the United States are not actually without authorization are on visa overstays. They're not actually right somehow like crossing the Southwest border in, you know, as I just, with all the news headlines in the last, you know, couple of months over the, sort of the, the border control itself across the river. So, yeah, that, that, I mean, and this also gets to the, sort of the reality of immigration in the United States versus to some degree the the political narratives around it that the reality of immigration um, authorized and unauthorized is much different than a lot of the narr- the political narratives that we are often hearing about and your research is about like essentially where these happen like where the the immigrant in the United States encounters um, the government um, and how the government then responds to the immigrant authorized or unauthorized in the United States. Um, and you right, talk and most of those touch points, I was going to say, right, are not CBP, right, or formerly or ICE or whatever iteration of INS earlier in, in earlier, right? A lot of that interaction is happening in the schoolroom, in a local business, applying for a license, you know, that kind of interaction is really much more sort of needs to be part of the narrative. And and so in a lot of what you're talking about, and you say you have these, the, the four categories of education, which we've talked a little bit about already in terms of the, the opportunity for K through 12, um, the the question of some of the welfare and civil liberties. Um, but two of the other areas that also make strange 
political bedfellows um, is the sort of labor market and employer sanctions. Um, and these are two policy areas that, again, are, are sort of operating in a way that most of us don't necessarily on a daily basis think about this is where immigration is happening. This is where this is the touch point. Can you talk about those two particular because they're part of the same sort of structure? Right. So um, I look at sort of so there's a movement in the 1970s to start passing in, uh, employer sanctions. And it starts in California. And it's one of those it's one of those policy areas that, right, if you look at today, I think would surprise many people. Right. So many of the people who are pushing some of the early employer sanctions bills are sort of what you would think of as traditional anti-immigrant nativists. Um, but you're also right. Strong union support, um, uh, support from groups like the Urban League. Right. So, so you've got this sort of across demog- it's not a, actually a um, it's kind of a bipartisan. Well, it's, it splits both parties. Right. It's splitting the Democratic Party and it's splitting the Republican Party in the 1970s. And they're pushing more and more as a way to sort of um, to think about as a way of immigration enforcement, to really think about employer sanctions in the United States. And for the Republican Party, right, it puts them in an odd space because they have these traditional anti-immigrant nativists, right? But you have all these people in the Reagan administration, right, who think the last thing we need is more government regulation, right? We're the anti-government, get the government off the backs of American businesses, right? This is not something that we would support, this goes so, so so antithetical to what we think about business and enterprise in the United States. And so you have this real rift in the Republican Party, right? And on the Democratic side, you have those who are sort of much more on the sort of thinking about uh, sort of what rights are more broadly and a sort of more uh, human rights based sort of a sort of narrative versus um, some of the more restrictionist members of uh, more restrictions members of labor unions, and as I mentioned, um, some traditional African-American uh, interest groups. And so these two parties, sort of these two, these four groups sort of struggle to find their alliances and, and sort of where, where they think this can go. And they spend like almost the early envisions of this are in or early sort of iterations of this in the early 1972 in California, but it really comes starts being proposed in the federal government in the like mid 1970s, like 76, 77, and you see the Carter administration wrestling with it, and you have this whole decade where basically these four groups are sort of wrestling with each other over what employer sanctions means and is this a deal that we're going to do, and they end up getting it through the 1986 uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, known as IRCA. But by the time it gets through, it's nothing that anyone thought it would be. And it has been stripped of every enforcement mechanism, right? In some ways, it's like the Republicans have pushed so hard. And I think this is actually a turning point for the anti-immigrant movement because they're like, we put so much faith in the federal government and this framework to get this through. We fought so hard from the mid-70s till 1986. And this is all we got, right? We got this like kind of on the books employer sanctions, there's no real mechanism tool, there's no real tracking, it's sort of gutted from within. And they're kind of like, and and a lot of that gutting actually is, you know, done by the Republican Party and the Reagan administration, right? Um, There's a big debate over having um, these identification cards, right? And that sort of strikes a very hard 
know and some of the libertarian elements of the Reagan White House, right? And so I think that leaves, by the end of the 1980s, you have these members sort of more what I would call more traditional nativists within the Republican Party who have put so much faith saying, okay, we've got our guy in the White House. We're going to move forward on this. And after a decade, we got basically nothing. And we kind of give up, they sort of, I would argue, sort of give up on the federal government as the place to make change and really pivot to the state houses. And, and, and to some degree, you see not quite the same thing in terms of the ideology, but on the left, you see the, the protection that labor wants to sort of have in terms of limiting how many people are looking for the jobs as it were. Yeah. They view it as a job protection sort of element. And what we see, and and it's a very slow change, right? It's a change begins in the 1970s. Um, UFW is going to change their policies during very slowly, um, obviously, and it does not happen for groups like the AFL-CIO for a while, right? But it is slowly, that's sort of the beginning of the moment where I think, particularly among um, labor unions with large Latinx populations, right, they start to see um, the ways in which their fates are intertwined with the undocumented population, but it takes a while. And it's also not just um, a shift in terms of labor organizations, you see this in terms of, you know, groups like MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. They start out the 19th, early 19th part of the 1970s, not really seeing uh, the rights of undocumented individuals in the United States as part of their purview. But it really sort of the, the ways in which immigration politics are shifting during the 1970s, they come to shift their position, right? And they end up being one of the lead attorneys on the Plyler case about education because they, they sort of see the ways in which the winds are shifting and they shift their tactics, right? They make a very sort of um, uh, very firm tack and sort of and move and move the, the interest group alignment at that point too. And, and so I wanted to take you from the 70s to the 90s, because the 90s is a place where also we see a shift in terms of the political economy that then also has uh, ramifications for the immigration policies inside the United States. Um, and so we're, we, we're out of the Cold War um, and we're in this this sort of more of a free, free freer market, freer globalizing market. Um, but how does this particular time period where you also have talked about the, the sort of shifts in the demographics, how does this particular time period then impact some of these internal domestic policies around immigration? Right. So I think you see in particular, you know, California at this moment is going through an economic downturn, right? They're um, one of the states that is hit hardest by the recession of the early 1990s. And I think people always look for a scapegoat, right? And I think even though it has, you know, we all know, have looked at the sort of data, right, that immigrants really um, add more uh, in terms to the economy than they take away, and they add more particularly to the social safety net, right? We have all this data that shows the ways in which immigrants pay into the system more than they uh, withdraw. That's not the narrative you get in the early 1990s. And I think as sort of the the ground beneath people's feet is shifting, um, and particularly sort of the anti-immigrant sort of nativist groups start to gain a gain a foothold in parts of California, right? As people start to say, okay, the service economy is changing, the jobs, the narrative is the jobs are disappearing, the service economy is rising. 
where's this social safety net and why are, why are these people having access to it at this moment where I might need it? Right. And, and that sort of, even though the data may not be there, that's the, that's the narrative that you get during the 1990s. Right. And that sort of shifts sort of how people, you know, people are doing less well than their parents were. Um, that's sort of driving a lot of the narrative that's coming out of these anti-immigrant movements at this moment. And, and it combines with this whole national debate about the economics of the welfare state, right? And entitlement spending. Like we have huge amounts of entitlement spending during the 1990s and the anti-immigrant groups do a really good job of tying sort of the question about entitlement spending or sort of using the national debate about entitlement spending as a way to sort of open up a conversation about immigrants' access to those benefits. And, and so we have all of this that is sort of, as you, as you note, 1965 was definitely a watershed in terms of changing policies inside the United States with regard to the national approach to immigration. But then you have these particular periods, the 1970s, the 1990s, um, the efforts as, you know, sort of as, as I watched them during the George W. Bush administration to try to get a sort of universal immigration reform package through that nobody supported. Um, and, and then, you know, and then we get to, to 2016 with Donald Trump campaigning on building a wall that Mexico is going to pay for um, as, as the solution to um, immigration problems in the United States, be they real or imagined. Um, and Greg Abbott currently is being sued by the federal government um, for some of what he's doing down on the Texas border. Um, so how did we get here exactly? Well, I think this is a big thing that I try and stress, which is I think a lot of people in the wake of the 2016 election sort of looked at it and like this was Trump was a sort of a deus ex machina, like the just sort of popped down and we didn't see him coming, you know, like it just sort of happened. But I think if you look in particular around immigration, you can see, right, that this is really a sort of three decades long shift that has happened. Right. And we've seen immigration sort of percolating up at specific moments. We've seen the anti-immigrant movement try out different strategies right? They try the federal push in the 80s. They see it doesn't work. They go to the state houses, right? A lot of what we're seeing right now is sort of things didn't really, we'd never got a comprehensive deal under George W. Bush at the federal level. Let's try and move it, right? Sheriff Joe Arpaio very famously, like, you know, has this moment in 2010 where he starts to go back, sort of, right? So we see a lot of this coming through these cycles, right, where they've learned, sort of immigration activists on both sides have learned, sort of what's worked and what's not working over these last 30 years. And they're sort of applying it at current day. And so I don't think you can look at the 2016 election as something that just sort of came. We've seen this rise in anti-immigrant sentiment. We've seen them move away. You know, I think what was surprising to me about 2016, but in the mid-1970s through the 80s, early 90s, we the language of the anti-immigrant movement really moved away from sort of the overtly racist sentiment to these sort of coded languages about entitlement spending and the rights of taxpayers and immigrants taking sort of these jobs and sort of it moved to to me what was surprising about 2016 was the sort of the reversion back to some of the overt racism but i wasn't surprised by that by the the use of sort of the 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 um 
the power of the anti-immigrant sentiment of 2016. I just sort of was interested in sort of the ways in which the language had actually sort of reverted back a little bit to some of the stuff that, you know, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, right, many people felt that in the wake of the civil rights movement, you just couldn't use that language anymore. So they felt the need to code it in, in sort of these dog whistling politics. Now in 2016, the dog whistling went out the window, right? And it just, we came back. But I think that trend that you see building from the 70s to today, and in terms of both the political language and sort of the ways in which immigration plays a key role in these campaigns is clear. And then the ways in which really beginning in the 70s, but really sort of coming to fruition in the 90s, what we see today, right? We can't be surprised that these governors right, are using, sort of creeping in, in the sense that on federal authority, because they've been doing this in slow, directed ways, right, for almost two decades now. So it's not, and it's, it's not new. In California, we see, right, immigrant activists abusing on both sides, right? We see those in certain states, right, who are trying to sort of um, marginalize the immigrant population, or we have immigrant uh, sort of incorporation at a state level in states like California, New York and others, right, that are really sort of with things like driver's license and access to in-state tuition and those sort of, those are all, you know, both both sides have learned sort of how to, how to use the state, the little states. The, the little states. <laughs> the 50 plus one. <laughs> um, and localities, obviously, as you know, you, you talk about um, Sheriff Joe Arpaio um, in, in 2010 and, state of Wisconsin sent some folks down to work with him. So, you know, again, localities and states operating in, in a really kind of checkered way, checkered, not bad, but checkered in terms of like a checkerboard um, way sort of around and inside the immigration processes. And I actually don't think that's going to change anytime soon in the sense that I think we don't have any, real move on comprehensive that looks particularly viable to me right now. And I think, you know, this might be the path that we're sort of on for a little while um, or not a little while, a long while. Um, right. I think sort of learning the limits of when the very much up to the whim of the judiciary, like at what point are they going to, you know, or because I don't think we're going to see a compre, I don't think we have a chance at comprehensive anytime soon. And so I think this sort of state by state system will continue for the foreseeable future. Um, which means a lot of different kinds of lawsuits, um, federal and states, <laughs> localities coming at each other. Um, so uh, so there isn't going to be a solution anytime soon. Um, <laughs> Sarah, according to what you're telling me, um, as a political scientist, I know you're a historian, but you know we, we, we sort of shop in the same stores. Um, and, and so what are you working on now? Um, so I'm sort of interested in um, more of this sort of immigration federalism, right? And I'm thinking, particularly looking at the ways in which um, sort of interactions between certain communities in, um, let me back, let me restart that. (laughs) Um, I'm interested in this question of immigration federalism in particular, and the area that I'm sort of interested in more now is looking at, there are certain what we now think of as new growth states, right? Particularly during the 2000s, which are new destination states, which up until this point, you know, haven't seen much 
they're still not the five biggest immigration receiving states, right? Those are traditionally, but they see their immigrant populations double. And at the same time, a lot of them are becoming swing states. So you start to look at states like North Carolina, like Nevada, like Colorado, like Virginia, right? That are seeing these massive sort of changes in their immigrant population and looking at sort of how those, what are considered new growth or new destination states in the late 90s, early 2000s, through the mid 2000s, sort of really sort of changed the federal uh, story. And is there anything in particular that you're seeing that's drawing you to these particular ideas in new growth states? I feel like we have a lot of um, of a, a, a much deeper understanding of how the federal government sort of pushes policy down, right? And we think about like very um, famous political science works like Ira Katznelson, right? And like others, when we think about how, right, the, the federal government really can influence state and local. And I really want to think through in these states, right, how that goes up, right? And how we really think through, in particular, these sort of very contested states, the role that electoral politics plays in pushing that policy up. I look forward to reading that book. Um, and hopefully you will come talk to me about it when it's done, um, because this one was actually such a pleasure to read. It is a beautifully written book, Sarah. And I want to thank Sarah Coleman for joining me today on the New Books Network to talk about the walls within the politics of immigration in modern America. I assume one can purchase this at the Princeton University Press website, as well as wherever anybody else gets books these days. Um, Thank you so much for having me, Lily. It was my pleasure. Thanks for talking to me today.